Welcome to Pedagog, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. The purpose of Pedagog is to promote diverse voices at various institutions and help foster community and collaboration among teachers of writing. Each episode is a conversation with a teacher or multiple teachers about their experiences teaching writing, their work, inspirations, assignments, assessments, successes, and challenges. Make sure to subscribe and follow Pedagog wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us online at pedagogpodcast.com. In this episode, Genevieve Garcia de Mueller talks about her approach to teaching, how she collaborates with students to build assignment prompts and rubrics, immigration policy and civil rights rhetoric, anti-racism, and writing across the curriculum. Genevieve Garcia de Mueller is the director of Writing Across the Curriculum and an assistant professor at Syracuse University. Her work focuses on writing across the curriculum, anti-racism, writing program administration, and policy studies. Her publications have included the co-authored Inviting Students to Determine for Themselves What It Means to Write Across the Disciplines and Race, Silence, and Writing Program Administration, a qualitative study of U.S. college writing programs. In 2020, she received an AAUW American Publication Grant for her manuscript, Shifting Landscapes, the Deliberative Rhetoric of Citizenship in U.S. Immigration Policy. Her anti-racist WAC program received the 2021 Four C's Writing Program Certificate of Excellence Award. Genevieve, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start by talking about your teaching. What principles guide your approach to teaching or what values do you have as a writing teacher? I actually went back to um, the the very last teaching philosophy that I wrote, which was, oh goodness, like around four years ago, I think was probably the last one that I wrote. Um, yeah, it was about four years ago. To just look to see whether or not, you know, four years ago Genevieve is the same as current, you know, Genevieve. So what I wrote in my uh, teaching philosophy, I'm actually going to read, it's just a sentence, but I'm going to read it. And it says, um, My teaching philosophy is threefold. I want to find ways for my students to care about their writing, to feel like the writing is important, and to be able to articulate their thoughts about writing. And I actually, I feel like I still really care about those three things. It's idealistic in some ways, but I really do want my students to truly care and be thoughtful about the kind of writing that they do in my class. And one of the ways that I feel like I do that, or I try to at least, you know, get to that, to that by the end of the semester, is um, I want them to do like an interrogation and a reflection of their own language practices, right? So at the beginning of the semester, we do a lot of work in thinking about our home languages, where we come from, how we're shaped to the way that we are, the communities that we come from, what are some like linguistic, you know, phrases that we use that are, that feel comfortable to us. I try to talk a lot about like, what's something that you say at home that is comforting or something that somebody says to you in your home that's always gives you comfort and why does it give you comfort? What is it about that phrase or what is it about that, that specific, you know, term that we use like, you know, for like, why do you use soda instead of pop or whatever it is, you know, and, uh, and what, you know, do you use Spanglish at home and why, and why is that comforting? Or one of the things that I felt really sort of out of place when I moved here is that this is the first time that I've lived besides my MA program, I lived in England, but this is the first time in the U.S. that I've lived where the language isn't predominantly Spanish. 
And so not hearing Spanish, just out on the street or when you're interacting with people at the store or whatever was really like disorienting. So I feel like a part of my practices is talking a lot about what language does for us in terms of comforting us and helping us to feel like we're home. And so when we start the semester with those conversations, it helps us to get to a point where students do really care about what they're doing because they're thinking about like, how am I, what language am I using and why am I using it? And at what point do I need to use language that is comforting to people? But then also on the opposite, what at what point do I need to use language that is discomforting, that pushes the boundaries, that makes people feel out of place or feel like they're being interrogated or systems feeling like they're being interrogated, right? Um, but I try to start with like a, a place of care and a place of comfort. And so the next one was to, to feel like the writing is important. And so I really try very hard to choose assignments in my class that are really flexible so that students can have a lot of choice. I really, you know, I really um, am a big proponent of choice. And I do a lot of co-writing of prompts in my class. So students will help me write the prompt. We'll do it as a class together. Um, so if they're writing the writing prompt, it's like, you know, we're choosing whatever kind of topic the class is, whether it's an, um, you know, immigration and policy class, whether it's a border rhetoric class, or whether it's an, even a freshman composition course, you know, we think about, okay, well, what are we asking us to do? And what products do we want to create by the end of the semester or by the end of this unit or by the end of this two weeks or whatever it is? Um, and we kind of work backwards. So we write the big major prompt together, and then we write the smaller assignments together that will lead up to the big major prompt. And I find in those ways, the more onus that the students have in the kind of writing, the product that they create in the, in the course, the more they feel like, oh, this is really important to me because I created the criteria. I created what I'm going to do. I had to stay in the way that I move throughout this class. Um, I even do that in graduate courses, to be honest. I like to, to do... Um, you know, one-on-ones with students figuring out, well, what's the product that you feel like you can create at the end of this course and why, and how can we fit it into the reading and the theory and whatever else that we're doing in the class. And then the last one was to be able to articulate their thoughts about writing. Um, this one, you know, as, as we're writing the prompts, we're also writing the assessments. So students will do community-based assessments in my course. Um, I've done a few labor contract in, you know, throughout the semester, I do things like that. Yeah, and I feel like through that process, they're able to do a significant amount of self-reflection. And also, you know, even there's like the, all of these other kinds of pathways that they take. Not only are they self-reflecting, but they begin to reflect on other, you know, writing. They begin to think about like what is useful, what's not useful about um, different kinds of writing or different kinds of genres. And so all of that sort of like articulating their thoughts about writing is, you know, integrated into everything that I do in the class. It seems like you create a student-centered classroom through collaboration and engagement. Can you talk more about community building practices and how you foster engagement inside and beyond the first year composition classroom? Maybe you could walk us through your sequence of assignments. We use, I do sort of like a three-phase project. Um, so the first one is a personal narrative and a discourse community um, analysis. So they'll do, they'll first start with, so what I was just talking about, like what comforts you, right? What language comforts you or what sort of phrases comfort you? So they'll take something that they use commonly in their home or at least out in their community and they'll do a, a personal narrative on um, and sort of like a trajectory of that phrase and how that phrase, where it comes from, what's the history of it, what's the context, when is it good to use, when can you not use it, who do you use it with, why do you use it with them, 
who can you definitely not use it with at all? Who is not allowed to use that phrase? Are there people that you feel like if they did use that phrase, it would be appropriating your culture or your region or your geography or whatever it is? So they do sort of that. And then they integrate that into um, the second part of this project, which is a discourse community um, analysis. So they look at um, specifically their community and they'll come up with sort of like a framework and um, their framework is usually surrounds like what's the context of this community, uh, what's the history of this community, very similar to like the phrase assignment, but it's more about the community in general. Um, and that sort of works into asking questions about um, community activism. So the, that project then leads into, well, what is the community, you know, what are some issues within your community that revolve either around, you know, linguistic justice or um, sometimes, you know, folks will choose like, racial justice, sometimes they'll, they'll choose disability justice, they'll choose, it kind of depends on, on, you know, what their community, where they're coming from. So they do this like language analysis and that moves into a more sort of material analysis, right? What is happening in terms of like um, activist work within their community and, and um, why is this happening and where is this happening and, and what, you know, how can you get involved in that? Um, but we try to find links between the prior work in terms of the language work that we do and what activists are doing in the community. So what do you see about like activist language that is, um, you know, pushing either pushing like, you know, creating a narrative for their community or fighting against a, or like a counter narrative. So fighting against a predominant narrative that is criminalizing them or how, however, like whatever sort of project they uptake. And they actually interview uh, members of their community. So they'll find, and I, and I kind of keep this very broad because I want students to feel comfortable. So sometimes if they have a link in an in activist community, then they'll just find somebody that they've, they've been working with, or they'll find like a nonprofit that they've been, you know, that they've been interested, or they might want to work out later on. Or it can also be like a family member. Like I've had plenty of students who decided, you know, I'm going to, um, I'm going to interview my grandparents, or I'm going to interview my uncle who does work, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. So I keep it pretty broad, um, but they ask those questions about like, you know, what issues do you see and what are some possible solutions? What sorts of things are you interested in in the community? Um, so they do this sort of interview and I really encourage them to do the interview in their home language. So they don't, they don't have to feel like they have to prioritize English. So, and we actually use like, when, when I do that, I use Laura Gonzalez's work in my class. So I have students will read, you know, will read translation um, theory, and we'll go through that process. And then um, the final one is usually the more sort of um, like academic based, you know, so so we start with language analysis in the community, we go into activist analysis and, and um, community analysis of like issues that are happening in the community. And the last one is based on that data. So based on the prior work that they did, they begin to, you know, research legislation, they begin to research policies, they begin to research where they can get involved in terms of you know, civic engagement, and they sort of make a, it can kind of end in two ways. They either make an argument for this is the kind of engagement that needs to happen, and this is what the community wants, or they can also do a real world material project where they could write to city council, or they could, you know, put together like a workshop for their community, or they could, so for example, when I was in UTRGV in, in South Texas, I had um, students who were working at um, Lupe, which is an organization and they put together a like a know your rights workshop. So their project started with this, you know, discourse community project, and then their final project was actually creating a bilingual 
um, workshop on you know, know your rights for undocumented persons in, in South Texas. So that was like their final project. But then I also had people who wanted to choose more of the traditional sort of academic paper. So it ended in a research paper. So you can, I, I kind of give them leeway and what they wanted to choose. Um, and then I also had people who were like, you know, creating like mass letters to Congress. They sort of like manifested in a lot of different ways. But uh, throughout that whole thing, you know, it, again, it's sort of like dependent on where the class is going and what they'd like to do and what kind of product they'd like to, you know, finish with. Um, so they engaged throughout all of this. Like we write the prompts for the language assignment. We write the prompts for like the interview assignment. We write interview questions together. Um, they can always go off book, but we try to, you know, try to at least framework it and say, these are the kinds of questions that you should be asking. You can rephrase them if you need to, but these are like the areas that we need, we're, we're going to be asking as a class. Um, and then also, you know, the, the, the ending assignment, we write all that prompt together. Um, but I noticed if like, again, if we start with, you know, interrogating our own language practices and really exploring our own language practices, students are more engaged. And if we, if we're, you know, giving them a gentle nudge to like do the work that they already are doing, because so many students are already doing a lot of this work, but they don't see it as something that could be written about in like a freshman composition course, right? Um, and I want their writing to actually be helpful in that kind of work they're doing out in the community. So I feel like my space in the class is a is a an area where they can you know practice their language skills and they can get feedback on their language skills and their writing skills, um, so that when they're doing the work in the community, it's more effective. You also teach courses on the rhetoric of immigration policy and civil rights. Can you talk about what it looks like to build classes around immigration policy and civil rights rhetoric and what kinds of texts you use in the classroom? Yeah, I do. I teach both at the undergraduate level and also at the graduate level. I teach um, courses on border rhetoric and um, policy studies. So they really, it really they're courses that revolve around the rhetoric of policy or the rhetoric of civil rights. And then I'll integrate things like immigration policy into that or immigrant rights into that, or I'll integrate, um, I've started to use more work on, you know, um, disability studies, I've started to use some work, you know, just sort of like a range. So even though it's my own work is, you know, centered on immigration policy, I've sort of tried to like fold in a lot of other kind of work as well. Um, but the courses really center on the language analysis of policy and also what leads to policy. So a lot of like my courses will start with, you know, reading, work that was like leading up to a policy decision that was made, right? So we'll start with like, you know, narratives about, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a really concrete example because I'm trying to like, try to like the theory of it, but a concrete example is like the DREAM Act, for example, okay? So if, if I was going to teach like the DREAM Act, we start with looking at um, articles that talked about the militarization of the border in the 1990s, right? Because that's the context. We start with that and we look at, okay, what, how were, um, immigrants in the 1990s, how were they being positioned within, you know, with, within the U.S., right? What was happening within the U.S. and how were they being articulated and identified, right? So that might be unit one where we start to kind of look at, well, what's the language surrounding immigration and immigrants in the 1990s? And then we kind of look in, okay, so then 9-11 happened and we'll look at the rhetoric around 9-11 because that leads us into all of those immigration choices that were made post 9-11, right? That's all of that. So we go, we start from like the identity of immigrants in the U.S. and then we move into policy choices that were made either prior or post 9-11 and what that language in that was happening in the 1990s, how that manifests in the policy, you know, pre and post 9-11, right? Um, and then we'll move into, so it took like 12 years for 
um, actually the DREAM Act was just reintroduced, but it took like 12 years after for DACA to happen in um, 2012. So we'll look at all of these, like um, we kind of we kind of move into public discourse. So we start with sort of like how were immigrants being positioned in in like articles and academic articles in the 1990s? How did that lead to policy choices post 9/11? And then what is happening in public discourse that leads to what we see during the Obama era? And then how do those policies then lead to Trump? So that might be like one trajectory of a semester, right? Um, the, the the most like the significant amount of work that we do has to do with just understanding how do you read policy. That's like one of my major things is like, is, you know, I spend a significant amount of time, I will use like Vanessa Beasley, I'll use a lot of, of, you know, persons that really kind of talk about how do you read policy and what does that do to you? Like, I have this phrase, and I'm sure if my grad students listen to this, they'll, they'll laugh, but I have this phrase that, uh, that I always talk about, like, how do we mitigate harm? How do we mitigate harm? Because policy doesn't actually it doesn't actually fix anything. It just, the only thing that you can do with policy is mitigating harm. So that's sort of like a mantra that we have in our class is what is happening to mitigate harm and how can we do that in the most effective way? Um, so it's an interrogation of how do we read policy? What does it do to the public? Um, how does it, you know, um, how does it create a whole identity of a population in public discourse? Um, and then also then finally, you know, usually most of like final projects are either at like a historical trajectory of a specific policy of reading. So like, for example, one of my graduate students, uh, Department of Homeland Security manual um, for um, uh, detained persons at the border. So there was actually the like safety manual that they would use on, you know, in like the detainment centers. And so they did an analysis of like that safety manual and how that safety manual actually dehumanizes persons within the detainment camps, right? And that's so like, that's really specific policy work, but it takes a whole semester of just going through really intricate details of like, how do we read this policy? What do we do with it? And how does it affect people? Um, that leads us into like an interrogation of like a really specific artifact. So your work also intersects race and writing program administration. You have a great article in WPA writing program administration journal called Race, Silence and Writing Program Administration. As the director of the WAC program at Syracuse, I was hoping you could share your vision for the anti-racist WAC toolkit you developed and what that work looks like on your campus. So yeah, I do. It, it's on our website. Um, you can go to the, the SUWAC website and it has like an outline of our fellows program and it also has the toolkit that you can access. And within the toolkit, it has links to all of the articles that we that we use to kind of create the program. So there's a, there's a lot of resources there. We also put together some activities, we put together um, we kind of have a, you know, a, a thing at the beginning, contextualizing what we do at SU. Um, and I actually just wrote, uh, co-wrote um, a chapter of a, uh, like a WAC um, book that's coming out next year, I think sometime, um, that describes like the story and like, you know, the how we put this together at SU. So I think that the biggest thing for me was getting, in terms of like support and the foundation of the program first, I'll talk about that and then I'll talk about kind of specifics what we do in the workshop, was we had to, I had to recruit, you know, senior faculty across campus that had some kind of buy-in with, you know, the same goals that I have. So if my goals are, you know, creating an anti-racist approach to WAC. So what that means is really interrogating what academic language does in all disciplines, um, why we uphold, um, you know, white supremacist ideologies in terms of language and genre and usage, where we do that, um, how we're replicating um, you know, racist notions within our courses and our, in our classes and our, 
syllabi in our assessment practices, you know, what, what we're doing to our students. So a big part of this to have any kind of institutional buy-in, I had to ensure that I had, as a junior faculty member, I had to ensure that I had senior faculty members who were on board with these kinds of investigations and interrogation. Because um, really what I'm asking them to do is to come to a workshop and interrogate their own practices, right? To think about what they're doing to their students and how they're doing that. It's something that is really difficult and it's, it's you know, can be uncomfortable um, for faculty members, but I found, luckily, I found, you know, um, four uh, faculty members for the first, you know, round that I was doing it on my own, um, who really had the same goals and intentions that I had, right? Um, so we weren't there to, you know, during the workshop series, we weren't there to point the finger at anybody else. We weren't there to say, you know, racism is off campus and here we're the liberal academy, right? None of that was going to happen. We had to really think about like what we were doing. So we have, you know, CFP where we're asking um, faculty across campus to apply and they have to articulate to us, you know, how they're going to use WAC within, within their work or why they want to be in the program. They have to tell us their experience um, with, you know, talking about race and racism within their course that we ask them, um, you know, some questions about, like, you know, why they want to do this work. We have, it's sort of like a, like a normal application process. Um, and then when they're in the program, they go through a five-week workshop series. So three are as a group and two of the workshops are one-on-one. -on -one. Um, they usually come in with a syllabus that they want to revise. So they've got some prior work done for some kind of course that they, that they teach that has like writing intensive aspect to it. Um, so when they come in, the very first thing that we do is we do an analysis of their syllabus. Um, so we have them do like a genre analysis of their syllabus. We have them do like a content analysis of their syllabus, um, asking, you know, in your syllabus, how are you constructing the identity of the student in your class? Who is this syllabus written to? Who would benefit who, you know, um, in your class and, you know, what kind of identity does the student have? And through those questions, it becomes very apparent about who and what identity their ideal student is. So even if they didn't like intentionally try to write something towards you know a specific person, um, it becomes very clear to them very quickly, you know who is going to be successful in their course and what kind of student is not going to be successful in their course. And we start there. So we start with like just really looking at their syllabi, looking at their assessment practices. We kind of take them through. Um, like a shortened version of, I noticed I use genre analysis a lot, but I take them through a shortened version of like a genre analysis and what you would do. And then we also introduce them to sort of some sort of like core concepts of WAC. We introduce them to work by, um, in a way, by, you know, Asao Inouye, um, Stacey Perriman-Clark. Um, we have them read Natasha Jones. We have them read um, Laura Gonzalez. So they do all of this reading before they come to the first workshop. And then throughout the the like, you know, the five weeks, we 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 go through like themes. So we'll do things like, um, you know, being explicit about you, you, you know, what kind of writing you prefer in your class and why, um, understanding what academic genres are gatekeeping, what academic, academic genres are going to be more inclusive. We talk about assessment practices like community-based um, uh, learning or community-based, um, you know, rubric building. Um, we talk about like uh, writing prompts and how to like create writing prompts. We also do some very like traditional WAC things like talking about exit tickets or talking about other kinds of like writing to learn strategies. So we do some of that, um, but we throughout the entire thing. So throughout all five weeks, 
um, they're really asking themselves those fundamental questions of, you know, how am I upholding white supremacy? And that's like, that's the, the foundation of the entire program. And so when, so it was, it was really important to get people in buy-in. And then once I had senior faculty who had buy-in and they went through the program, we also follow them throughout the year. So they'll do their five-week workshop and then I observe them in the fall and I observe them in the spring. So they teach twice and I observe them and give them feedback. Um, and we continue our mentoring. So like if, you know, I had one faculty member who used um, community rubric building and they were having a really hard time getting student buy-in. So they had me come in and do a workshop and then it helps to like get students involved in it. Um, so we can, it, you know, continuous support is really, really vital and important. You really can't do this work um, with a few workshops. You have to, I would say, you know, mentor them for at least a year. Like it's, it's you know, it's a, it should be a long process. If, um, and our, and our, you know, it helps because our faculty members get compensated. They get $3,000 for going through this program. So that's a, another really like, you know, key thing that sort of like institutional support is really, really vital. How do you navigate conversations around issues of racism with teachers? And how would you encourage WPAs to go about having these necessary, important conversations with their own colleagues? Um, I think that for me, it was helpful when the faculty members came to these conclusions on their own. So when I took them through the process of doing their own self-reflection of their materials, they began to realize that they had a very specific student in mind as they're writing their syllabus, as they're writing their, you know, their assessments, as they're writing their rubrics, as they're writing this, and um, who that student was there was like a, a very clear realization as to like what they were doing, right? And and who was benefiting, who was not benefiting their courses. And that to me, I think was the key to why um, people stuck with the program because, or why they, they found it a, you know, a revelation. You know, I, we have this panel every year called Reimagining Student Writing where we have our WAC fellows, um, you know, talk about their experiences. We actually recorded it and I'm gonna put it up um, the, the one from this year on Zoom, and I'm gonna put it up at some point. But, um, you know, during that panel, I had faculty members say, I felt like th there's a, there's a, there was one um, faculty member who said like, she felt a significant amount of shame when she came to the realization of, you know, the practices that she was doing in her course. Um, but then she pivoted and said, but I felt supported in the program. And I felt like I had actual specific strategies that I could take um, to revise my syllabus and my assessment practices that are going to benefit students. So I think that's the shift or that's the turn that always has to be made, right? So you can go through the process of feeling guilt and feeling shame. And that's, you know, normal for a lot of, you know, professors, I think any person who realizes what their, you know, what their actions are doing to people, but you have to also make that turn and that shift to, you know, you can't just sit in that guilt, right? So you have to talk them through it and say, okay, so here are some things that are happening, but here are some strategies and some practices that you can take that will, you know, benefit your students, that will, you know, revise your syllabus, that will help you to, you know, to make the kind of revisions that you need to make. And so the difficult conversations cannot be avoided. You're going to have people who are resistant. You're going to have people who are uncomfortable. You're going to have people, but that's a really important conversation to have. And it's really important for people to be uncomfortable, to be honest, you know, it's really, really important. As long as you also provide strategies to help them as a pathway out of that, right? Um, so that's really important as well. I, I have had, you know, during the workshop, I have had a couple of times where 
people were very, you know, resistant to, you know, what was, what was happening. But what was nice is that it's not just me. I have, you know, an AD, so I have an assistant director. I have the chair that's in there. And I also have the, you know, the three other fellows, right? And so because it's a conversation, I, you know, people have, you know, they, they also self-correct each other, I would say, right? So they also, so that's another reason why it was really important to have senior faculty at the beginning, because they're okay with being like, well, wait a minute, you know, you said this and you're being resistant to this, but however, you know, so having like a, it, having it be a collaborative effort and it's not just like we're interrogating you and we're trying to, you know, but it, it's like a collaborative effort to make everybody's work better. Um, that I found very successful in a way to kind of, you know, navigate the uncomfort that you, or the discomfort that you might feel. Thanks, Genevieve. And thank you, pedagogue listeners and followers. Until next time.